Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is to the Christian Reformed Church what the Vatican is to Catholicism, and Tom Cruise's house is to Scientology. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you can find us online at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts, or you can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, and streaming at My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, my fellow doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hey. And teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. Hello. Dr. Professor Luke Galen is off on assignment. Right off the bat, let me tell you that we have a very exciting announcement coming up at the tail end of the show, so stay tuned for that. We have a Reasonable Doubts event coming up that you can all be a part of, so you don't want to miss that. Now, on today's show, we've got polyatheism, some hardcore, old-fashioned counter-apologetics, taking on this time presuppositionalism. Yay! <laughs> the one everyone's been waiting for with bated breath, no doubt. I think, yeah, I think about 70 to 80 percent of our listeners can probably just tune out for most of this <laughs> Well, this will be... But the hardcore counter-apologetics right. people will be very happy. And... and Quite frankly, we haven't serviced them recently. No. So. <laughs> serviced them? <laughs> yep. <laughs> because it's a bit of a counter-apologetic circle jerk is what I'm saying. A cluster cuss. There we go. But to start off, uh, we've got the news. And I don't know that I've ever said this phrase before. Some interesting sports-related stories, first off. What? Uh, I know, right? Now, apparently, there's a um, footballer, that's American football, uh, of note, named Tim Tebow. Have you heard of this guy? He's um, a a very religious fellow. He paints like John 316 on his face. For a while, he was winning a lot of games, and people were crediting God for his victories. Is is this the guy who takes the the, bow? Yes, he does the T bow when he when he gets a touchdown or which. By the way, did anybody see the uh, Jimmy Fallon uh, Jesus Christ to Tim Tebow Bowie? Did not. (laughs) Oh my God! Um, It was the best thing I've ever seen. I'll have to look. I feel like that was made for me. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, um, so. Um, the Super Bowl is actually the day we're recording this show, so we're we're all totally jazzed, waiting for the what the blue and whites are fighting the white and blues. I can't wait to get home and sports, you know, sports, sports. Get the junk food out and watch some Breaking Bad on Netflix. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's what I'll be doing tonight. Sounds about right. But but for a while, as Tim Tebow's team, whatever team that is, was having victories, people were saying, well, clearly God is on their side. And then they lost, and they didn't make it into the Super Bowl. Hmm. So 
Uh, Where's your God now? Exactly. <laughs> I think we have to argue that the Super Bowl itself and, and Tim Tebow's lack of presence there is proof that God does not exist. So Argumentum ad <laughs> Tebow. Yes, yes. Um, and, and to be fair, I don't think he ever made that argument that, you know, his prayers and, and God helping him win proved God's existence, but other people did. So so now God doesn't exist um, by that same logic. In other um, Super Bowl-related news, and this is actually happening this morning as of the time we're recording, uh, American Atheists is flying a banner over the stadium where the Super Bowl is taking place to catch all of those tailgaters on a oh. Super Bowl Sunday morning. I'm sure they picked a slogan that was tasteful. Oh, boy. The banner reads, <laughs> football beats church anytime, atheist.org. Well, that's, so, that's you know, actually, it that's, it it's is. tailored to their crowd. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And they're, they're, well, done. well done, guys. Uh David Silverman, the president of American Atheists, says, quote, we took advantage of a unique opportunity to remind many Americans that their religion is not as important as they like to pretend it is. In many cities around the country, the running joke is that football is the most popular religion. Um, this banner will be seen by thousands of tailgaters who clearly agree with American Atheists since they chose to sit on a tailgate instead of a pew. So... Hmm. All right, that's one one way to to get the word out. I'm not sure how receptive the uh, Super Bowl tailgaters are to the message, but uh, you know, there's a shot, and um, good for them. It's flying uh, Sunday morning, Super Bowl Sunday morning, from 9:30 to 11:30 a.m. local time. So hmm. now, getting out of sports, um, we have some bad news for Scientology. That's so sad. I know. What a shame, right? (laughs) A French court has upheld a Scientology fraud conviction. Originally in 2009 came down the conviction and they appealed it. And now as of this past Thursday, um, February 2nd, the appeals court upheld it. Here from an article from Religion News Blog. During the appeals process, the prosecution had asked for the church to be fined at least 1 million euro, that's 1.3 million dollars US, and its bookstore, there's a bookstore involved here, I'll get, explain that in a moment, um, half a million euro. Hmm. But the appeals court on Thursday instead ordered the same fines as the trial court, so rather than upping it with the appeals, they kept it the same, which was... Um, 400,000 euro, um, just over half a million dollars U.S. for the church, and 200,000 euro for the bookstore, which for Scientology is roughly two e-meter sessions. So. <laughs> it, it was nice, though. I mean, the original conviction was on was on fraud. Uh, yes. It was, it was just nice to see a court recognize what, you know, all the evidence is pointing to is that these people are being pressured into paying tons of money yep. for remedies that have no scientific basis whatsoever. They're being conned. Right. They're offering a service. Uh, Europe for does much better with this stuff than than we do. Well, but it's a double-edged sword, too. I yes, mean, it is. Part of France tends to be uh, more militantly secular right. than mm-hmm. most other European nations. And at, at times with stuff like this, 
I mean, we, we talked about on our cults episode mm-hmm. how Scientology became a religion in the United States. Basically, came down to pressure in the IRS. It was a yeah, it was, it was a tax, a tax yes. status change. It's a very sloppy way to start designating things as religion. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. I, I kind of like the fa- fact that France just flat out denies has, them. They have a list status. of cults, and yep. yeah, and will deny groups like these uh, religious status. On the other hand, to an American perspective, right. we, we would see a lot of their decisions infringing on free speech. Free speech. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely a uh, a big loss for the Church of Scientology being legally now responsible for fraud. Yes. The courts have convicted um, the church and six members, um, the cult, uh, as they call it in France, only in French. Not sure what the French word for cult is. Uh, Luke would have made up something. <laughs> <funny>. <laughs> oh, we miss you, buddy. Um, so big victory there. Now we have here in the United States, yes, an Amish splinter group that has been charged with a number of attacks involving the hair cutting and the shaving of beards of regular Amish folk. Because, of course, for Amish men... Um, you don't shave your beard. It's part of your identity. And for Amish women, you don't cut your hair. So these people who broke off from the main Amish group, um, they're called the Burholz clan, which is um, run by – yeah. Um, and, and this is – it's funny because, of course, they're attacking people and cutting their hair. Um, <laughs> their names are – Sam Mullet and Johnny Mullet. <laughs> Samuel Mullet Sr. and his son, Johnny Mullet. I'm, I'm trying to read this and, you know, be a decent person and mature adult. But Amish Splinter Group, led by Johnny Mullet, <laughs> going on a beard shaving rampage. But it is serious. It I'm, is serious. It no, is a hate I'm, crime. No, I'm laughing. Yes. But that it, this is an assault. This isn't a form of it assault is. on these people, and they're being terrorized. So I, I shouldn't be laughing. But but there's uh, a lot of silly involved in it too. And, but yeah. the the Burholz clan, as they're referred to, um, led by Sam Mullet, this is serious cult stuff. Yeah. Um, They've been compared to um, the People's Temple cult, Jim Jones Ooh. group. Yeah. Here's how you know you're a member of a cult. Yeah. When the leader starts saying, hey, give me your wives so that mm. I might cleanse them of the devil with sexual acts of intimacy. Oh, yeah, yeah. As Mr. Mullet said. Yeah. I mean, there is no bigger red flag for cults than let me cleanse your women with sexual acts. Um, He also forced members to sleep for days at a time in a chicken coop on his property and allowed some members to beat others who appeared to disobey his rules. This is starting to sound like Scientology. Yeah, right? I I was just going to say that because um, what's his name? The head of Scientology has also been known to... Yeah, Miscavige. Miscavige has been known to uh, take out some of his... So it says that uh, it says that the feud it's it's a feud over church discipline that actually led to these attacks. This is a story that came up a couple months ago, I think, right. and we were going to talk about it and then just never got to it. But now it's it's popping back up in the news a bit. They pled right, not guilty right, to right. the charges, so 
you know, a good thing here is that they might stop a cult before it reaches a trim, before they get a to the Kool Aid from yeah. the cure. Yeah, yes, good way of putting it, mm-hmm. creepy way of putting it. But well, yeah, this might have been the intervention that was needed right at this time to stop a tragedy from happening. Absolutely. So, so, so ultimately, it could be a very good thing to uh, to nip this in the bud, as it were, the bud of Johnny Mullet. <laughs> <laughs> Can Will Ferrell His play Johnny Mullet in the in the made for TV movie? Oh, I'm sorry. I I really do feel for the the very peaceful Amish people who are being assaulted like this. But you know, you know they don't they don't get podcasts, so yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> They'll never know that we laughed at their pain. No harm, no foul. Oh, awful, awful. Um. Another story coming out of Europe, um, UK Muslims convicted in gay hatred case. Um, Also getting this story from Religion News Blog. Three men in England have been found guilty of stirring up hatred on grounds of sexual orientation after distributing a leaflet that said Islam called for anyone caught committing homosexuality to be executed. Yeah. The, the the big title on the front of this pamphlet is the death penalty mm-hmm. question, uh, and then it has a guy hanging from a noose. It, it asserts that capital punishment is the only yeah. way to get rid of homosexuality. Yep. Three of the people who were charged with this were committed. I believe two others were um, were released. Um, they were convicted of quote distributing threatening written material intending to stir up hatred on the grounds of sexual orientation in the first prosecution of its kind since legislation came into force in March 2010. Now, the the tricky thing for me here Mm -hmm. is they were handing out – I mean, this is essentially an act of free speech. It's awful speech. It is hateful Mm -hmm. speech. Here in the United States, I would hope, although since our rights are quickly vanishing, I don't know how this would turn out necessarily. They'd probably lose their right to habeas corpus and end up in Guantanamo. Unless they were incorporated. Right. Uh, Good point. (laughs) Corporations are people, my friends. Jeremy, Jeremy, corporations are people, my friends. Sorry, Dave. So... (laughs) If just by distributing um, this material that quotes from the Quran saying this is the penalty for homosexuality, couldn't you also be convicted of this same crime by selling a Quran or perhaps selling the Bible or any other religious literature mm-hmm. that, that could lead yeah. someone to the conclusion that homosexuals should be beaten or killed. I mean, this is the same thing we get from uh, Fred Phelps over here. Right. Right. I mean, again, UK law is different than uh, American law. I think we're all in this room uh, as as left as we are. uh, We're pretty prejudiced towards that Bill of Rights. Yes. You know, when when you're inciting a mob to violence, that's one thing. Yes. When you're when somebody's up there and. Tensions are hot in your community, and it could spill over into violence, and somebody is saying, let's kill the homosexuals. Right. Yeah, then I think it's a pretty clear case. But when they're handing out pamphlets, it's funny. It's kind of a condemnation on Islam, uh, but at the same time, 
you can't deny that they're right here. This response of these people to their charges were, we are simply quoting and following what our religion teaches about yep, homosexuality, right. and they're right. They're absolutely right, mm-hmm. which is why part of this is is kind of rewarding, too, because it's like, look, this is what's in the Quran. This is what it says. Let's not hide from it. Let's just say this is a hateful religion. This calls for the murder the execution of homosexuals. Right. Same there. with the Hebrew Bible. Well, right? exactly. You know, Leviticus That's, and everything yeah. else. So let's. Did they say love the sinner, hate the sin on the top of the. <laughs> well, right. I, I mean, there, is, there are legitimate differences of interpretation as far as when we have verses telling us kind of contradictory attitudes, what do we give yes, priority exactly. to? Right. So, yeah, I'm not, not denying that there are. Uh, Plenty of Muslims who who have a theological justification to find this as detestable as we do. Of course, do. of course. Uh, but nevertheless, they are being true to these scriptures. And as as you were saying, yeah, if if they can, if a pamphlet's hate speech, <laughs> what do you? Yeah, you where, know? where do you draw the line? Right. You know, if you're selling the Quran to get people to believe the contents of it, doesn't that include hatred of gays? You know, it, it's a, and I don't want a slippery slope here, but but it is difficult to legally find a difference between right. the two. Yeah, I wouldn't say I it is a slippery let, yeah, slope. Let the let the hatred and the bigotry be out there. Let it be open and visible, so we can all make note of it mm-hmm. and where it's coming from. Let people see um, the the hatred and the nastiness of it. We send them to jail and, oh, it's just these three guys who are yeah. saying bad things. When we fact, turn them into not. heroes. Yeah. Right. And it, and it gives a total, uh, when, when we have censorship issues with these cartoons and everything, it's a total mm-hmm. mixed message to try to say, well, hey, look, we can print out cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad and and whatever we want, but you can't do anything that's uh, inciting hatred or... These cartoons are depicting the Prophet in in a way that they find offensive. Yes. And so we're not going to allow them to do the same thing about other people in our population. So response is you don't have a right to not be offended. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a tricky one. Now, um, speaking of... Even more legislation, this time involving uh, a a different form of censorship. In Indiana, this comes to us from um, Ed Brayton's blog, Ed Brayton, friend of the show, who will be back on WPRR very soon. Very soon. Very excited about that. But anyway, um, he shares this article about a creationism bill that passed in the Indiana Senate. Obviously, anytime someone introduces a creationism bill, it tends to lead to some controversy. So they did make some changes to the original bill. Let's see if you think it's enough, okay? The original bill said, quote, The governing body of a school corporation may require the teaching of various theories concerning the origin of life, including creation science, within the school corporation. That's the original wording, okay? That's the stuff that didn't pass. They changed it to say, the governing body of a school corporation may offer instruction on various theories of the origin of life. The curriculum for the course must include theories from multiple religions, which may include, but is not limited to, Christianity, 
Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Scientology. Wow. No, that's wow. That is in the bill that passed the Indiana State Senate. You mean this isn't like a game of guess what the nope. false part is that I'm saying? Nope. <laughs> oh, wow. Nope. You know... Was that a stunt? Because if so, bravo to whoever yeah. added that. Well, it, it may be. It passed. <laughs> oh That's incredible. Wow. Well, and of course, and as Ed points out here, is it, it will be struck by, down by the courts. Right. I mean, and by the way, Indiana, the home state of um, John Scopes, where they have the Scopes monkey trial. So creationism oh, yeah. um, laws have been kind of a big deal in that state for, oh, 100 years or so. But uh, – yeah, clearly this doesn't fix the problem. The the original problem with the bill, various theories. Yeah, what is the that, origin yeah. of life? Define yeah. theories. Well, exactly. <laughs> when we're talking about science, there's a really clear definition of what a theory right. is. And the only theory in science that holds up any credibility is the, the theory of evolution. But then they lump it in with including creation science, which is a right. completely nonsense so, phrase. So scientific theories plus a bunch of ideas that people had about... Yes. But now now in the new legislation, rather than saying creation science, and they say the school may offer, not may require, but may offer... They're not saying they're required to give a, a plethora of Well, it, it does say if the curriculum for the course <clears throat> must include theories from multiple religions. So, oh, okay, so okay. it could not be just a just Christian, a Christian theory, but okay, it could yeah. be Christian and Judaism. <laughs> right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Compare and contrast. Christian, Judaism, and Islam. It's like, you know, I mean, right. I mean, what, what differences are you dealing with there? Now, it would be great to throw in Scientology yeah. just, just as a way to make oh, the gosh. students go, Whoa! There's there's some <laughs> there's some twisted part of me that actually wants, <laughs> wants to see that happen. Now there's a see... volcano with frozen alien spirits yeah. in it. <laughs> We've got a lot of options. There was this god that said, "Let there be light," and it happened. Or maybe a B-52 bomber dropped some nukes into a volcano. <laughs> So I'm not going to push anyone on you. <laughs> These are things you need to think about. Oh, dear God. Oh, it's so much fun and so awful. Um, and again, my only, the only reason I can enjoy this is because this is clearly something that's not going to pass the courts. Even as conservative as our Supreme Court is now, there is no way they're going to buy this, I hope. I hope that's true. <laughs> now, um, speaking of um, religious nutjobs in the United States, Mitt Romney, who seems to be um, the heir apparent to the Republican nomination, um, despite not caring about the very poor. Did you hear him say this? Yeah, yeah. I, how that didn't end his campaign immediately, I will never understand. But he doesn't care about the very poor. They have a safety net, much like people who work in Apple factories. And I think as he does eventually win the Republican nomination, despite um, what many Republicans would like to have happen, 
Um, we're going to have to talk more about Mormonism because it's really going to become a, a hot topic in the United States at least. But just as a taste, story came out uh, a week or so ago that uh, Mitt Romney baptized his father-in-law into the Mormon church after his father-in-law had died. Mm-hmm. Does that even count? For Mormons, it does. I mean, assuming <laughs> baptism counts for something. Right. It really yeah, counts exactly. after you're dead. Um, of course, the, the real kicker here is his father-in-law was an avowed atheist. He was an engineer for NASA. So mm-hmm. this is a, a very science-minded guy. He was an atheist. He opposed organized religion. And yet when he was dead, Mitt and his wife said, oh, let's baptize him into the Mormon church so that we can Classic. claim him as yeah. one of our own. Dum, yeah. dum, dum, their, dum, their roles are inflated with yeah. uh, the souls of the dead. Including um, Holocaust victims. Yeah, yeah, they had to, um, some group sued years ago to get I think the Jewish Anti-Defamation off. League yeah. or something. Mm. Yes. Yeah, which, mm. was, uh, which was a good move. I mean, yeah, because you don't have to get the permission of the right. family, apparently, to, to do these uh, you need, baptisms. You need a name and, I think, a lock of their hair. No, that's voodoo. Uh, <laughs> that's what, yeah, they don't have to exhume the body to baptize no, them. No, they literally need nothing. Someone has right, to symbolic take, on, take on the name symbolically and walk into a fountain or something. But he did this to his um, atheist father-in-law, which is bothering a lot of atheists, including Bill Maher, who um, ritually unbaptized Mitt Romney's father-in-law oh, on his show? The old switcheroo. He put on a wizard's hat and, <laughs> and waved around a magic wand and declared him uh, officially unbaptized, which is just as legitimate as the Mormon baptism, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, yeah, we'll we'll definitely be having more on on Mormonism and more on Mitt in the coming future. And finally, last but not least, in our news, a uh, a young man uh, in Indonesia, as many of you have probably heard, was arrested because he said on Facebook that there is no God. I think like. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Where's the unlike button? I don't want to say I like that. No, person. but liking his statement, I think yes. that God yeah. God doesn't exist. He he was arrested. He's an Indonesian civil servant. Was arrested in the predominantly Muslim nation, of course, um, and it he could see jail time. Yeah. For saying simply on Facebook, no less. The last time I caught the story, because this happened a, a couple weeks, weeks ago, ago. We're, yeah. we're still getting back to news items we missed on the break. But yeah, the last time I saw this story, he was in protective custody mm-hmm. because there were already people who were chopping at the bit to get at him. Mm. Yes. And uh, I, don't, I didn't see where it developed after that, but wow, it... Things like that, uh, they just make you realize that you can have old world fundamentalism Mm -hmm. in a high-tech society running parallel. And, of course, um, atheists are speaking out against this, um, not so much in Indonesia because (laughs) it wouldn't work out terribly well for them. It's a rough situation for non-believers in that country, so hopefully he will escape prosecution, escape 
jail time, but um, it doesn't look terribly hopeful at this point in the very fundamentalist, staunchly Muslim country. Yeah, they have, they have a lot of uh, Indonesia was one when we did our Blasphemy Day series a while ago, and Indonesia was one that had really, really tight blasphemy laws. But the thing is, a lot of times, these blasphemy laws that are on the books, they're they're never actually used, right. uh, or they're very rarely used. You do get these cases of, like, mob justice. Well, yeah, of so, course. And, and they say, hey, look, this is consistent with the laws of our nation. They're on the books that the penalty for this stuff is death. And I, I think one of the things that triggered this uh, guy getting arrested is the fact that he's a civil servant. He works for the government. Okay. So that, that raises the the level of it beyond just ordinary citizen saying something. This is a guy who works for the government and is there, therefore, at least in their eyes, much more responsible to uphold the anti-blasphemy laws than, hmm. than <laughs> Joe Schmo might be. So um, hope that works out for the best for him, and we'll keep you posted on that. Now, time to do some serious counter-apologetic ass-kicking. Um, I don't know how much ass-kicking we're going to do in this one. But we're setting the stage for a whooping. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. Recently, we actually got an email uh, asking about presuppositional apologetics and what and what exactly this is and, you know, how would... How would someone go about responding to these these different claims? Right. It's a yeah, it's a very unique form of Christian apologetics. Mm-hmm. It's it, many atheists are kind of taken off guard when they first encounter a presuppositionalist because they don't uh, they don't use the same uh, what we might call evidentialist style mm-hmm. of argument that other apologists uh, would use. Yeah, and as soon as we got this email in, I, I quickly fired off a response saying, who put what in the what now? I have no idea what presuppositionalism <laughs> is. This is this is Greek to me. So for me and... Big words are scary. The Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the large portion of our listeners here... Um, we're going to start off today by kind of breaking down presuppositionalism, explaining what it is, setting up some of the arguments. Then on our second part, we'll move into critiques. Yes. The uh, presuppositional method is, is very unique in its approach. It doesn't try to, uh, to argue to Christianity from some kind of neutral ground. Uh, one of the tenets of the presuppositionalist is that they actually reject the even the possibility of a kind of neutral ground they mm. call this you know they they say that neutrality is a myth essentially that every method of finding truth requires some basic presuppositions and I, I think that this this is actually something that we can agree with them on on a certain extent yeah you you either have some axiom some sort of a epistemological bedrock. Uh, or when you're trying to justify your claims, you have an infinite regress problem. That's kind of our choice. Right, right. And so, yes, there are certain things that even we would acknowledge we just have to accept by necessity. Right. The disagreement uh, between us and the presuppositionalists would be uh, um, what is really necessary to accept mm-hmm. and what isn't. Right, right. Neutrality claims the presuppositionalist is a complete absurdity. And so you'll rarely hear... Uh, presuppositionalists argue to a conclusion after, 
you know, a proper consideration of a probability argument or, you know, a formal list of premises or even an inference to the best explanation. Hmm. They kind of assume it's true because they think that this is the only assumption that could possibly make sense. They presuppose it, hence it being called presuppositionalism. Okay, I got that much. They refer to this as the impossibility of the contrary. In his book, Always Ready, the late Greg Bonson writes, quote, In various forms, the fundamental argument advanced by the Christian apologist is that the Christian worldview is true because of the impossibility of the contrary. When the perspective of God's revelation is rejected, then the unbeliever is left in foolish ignorance because his philosophy does not provide the preconditions of knowledge and meaningful experience. To put it another way, the proof that Christianity is true is that if it were not, we would not be able to prove anything. It's kind of a reduction to the absurd style of argument where usually you you don't. You don't affirm your own position. You just show all the alternatives are silly. Right. Um, and, and so this is, you know, this is what usually happens in, in debates with presuppositionalists. While, while standing within the Christian worldview, they will seek to demonstrate that all non-Christian worldviews are incoherent or can't be lived out consistently. A presuppositionalist will most likely accuse you of knowing that God does exist on some deep level as evidenced by the way in which you live your life. You know, we all make moral statements. We all use logical reasoning. And and for these reasons, they would argue that we clearly know in some sense that God does exist. And, of course, biblical reasons that we know, uh, they would cite Romans 118, uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who, by their wickedness, suppress the truth. Part of this, what we should understand is they're not actually trying to rationally persuade us over to their side. Right. They're not They're not hoping to win an argument. Because we're totally fallible or, or because we are totally depraved, there, there's no way we could reason our way into believing God. So it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit working on our hearts mm-hmm. to transform mm-hmm. us. So mm-hmm. when they're when they're debating an atheist... They're just waiting for the Holy Spirit to come in. They're they're hoping to facilitate that process right. in some sort of way. Show the non-believer that he's not he's not being very consistent, and hopefully he'll humble themselves, and you know God will take it from there. Essentially, along with their intellectual arguments, they will make ad hominem attacks on the character right. of the of the atheist, saying you're, you're immoral for thinking the way you do. You're thinking in an ungodly way. They they think we're lying. Right. Right. They, they really do. That we actually know in yeah. our heart of hearts that God exists, and we're just right. trying to cover up for that. That we right. don't like that idea. So we're. Trying I was to... taking my yeah my usual tact of of trying to you know explain what negative atheism is. The person making the claim takes on the burden of proof. Right. You know, you need to argue for your position in God, which they, of course, reject. So I was totally blindsided right. by that. But, I, I, you know, I was thinking of this as just like a clever way of dodging the burden of proof. I didn't realize that they they, they weren't just disputing my presumption. Mm-hmm. They really thought I was lying. <laughs> right. I mean, they will acknowledge that maybe self-deception has gone right, on. Right. Maybe oh. they've, maybe so we they've don't gone, even know we're lying maybe to we're ourselves. Not necessarily we've conscious gone of on us. with that lie for so long that we've fooled ourselves into believing it, maybe. 
these people must be maddening to debate. I cannot. Well, yeah. um, oh, I, yes. mean, I mean, <laughs> like you were saying, going in with the tools that that we're usually going in to a debate with, none of that works. We're going to talk about that as, as Justin goes on explaining right. to us presuppositionalism. We're going to talk about then strategies atheists usually use in debate that are totally not going to work with these guys. But to get us started off in that area while we're, while we're on the subject, what about this claim that they're making that the atheist is just lying? The atheist really knows in their heart that God is, is real. You know, the way you and I would usually respond to that is, is just to call bullshit on it and mm-hmm. say, that's, that's an unfalsifiable viewpoint, right? You can't get into my brain and see what I'm thinking. I could just as easily advance the claim, right, that all theists really know that really God know doesn't exist. Yeah. And, and neither of us has any way to demonstrate our, our claims or falsify the other person's claims. The thing is to understand the presuppositionalists, they don't care. <laughs> right. <laughs> they're not they're not basing their claim on any kind of empirical psychology. Yeah. They think, as Justin pointed out, the the Bible says every every human being is without excuse. Right. So that must be the case. And to grant the possible truth that we do, do genuinely believe in God, would, they would see that as a kind of blasphemy, a blasphemous thought, right? How dare I think anything opposite of what the Bible says. Now, there's probably a lot of evidentialists out there like William Lane Craig and these other guys. Oh, who, yeah. William Lane Craig definitely thinks that the, the, the non-belief is definitely a moral issue right. rather than an intellectual but, issue. But they would tend to not submit that in an argument, <laughs> right? right? They, they, wouldn't, they would see that as an improper thing to introduce into a debate right. because it's not the other side doesn't grant that the Bible is true. So you, right. have, to, you have to argue from some sort of neutral vantage point, mm-hmm. not for the presuppositionalists, right? They say there is no neutrality. We right. have to assume the truth of the Bible and everything else. Yeah. yeah. So presuppositionalists, it, it all essentially, from what I understand, it is a kind of coherentist epistemology. Um, and, and what this means is that a, a belief is justified insofar as it kind of fits within a coherent web of beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're going to have this this large web of, of beliefs that uh, you know, they all kind of serve to justify each other, you know, as long as they, they kind of make sense. Now, according to the presuppositionalist, there's only one possible coherent web. And so it follows that there's only one possible justified worldview, the Christian one, of course. Surprise! Uh, uh, right. Crap, I thought it was going to be as long. Not Scientology, <laughs> huh? Oh, oh. Losing money. <laughs> so... So Christian epistemology boils down to uh, at least what I could find on this, right? The way in which they know things is that God reveals them to us. There is no kind of autonomous going to find things out, right? Mm. God somehow injects you with a belief, and because it's God doing this, right. that's what makes it justified in a sense. And I'm sure if I'm if I'm getting this wrong, we'll, we'll be oh, we'll hear notified. From yep. no, so. Um, <laughs> Tell me if I'm wrong, Justin, because mm-hmm. you've read a lot more of their material than I have. But I didn't get the sense that they believe that every bit of knowledge in their heads is directly delivered there by God, so much as they believe that the ability to believe in God in typical Calvinist fashion the knowledge of God is put there, yeah. and, that, and that God kind of serves as the foundation for laws of logic, any kind of empirical method that would be based on induction, God's created a universe where these ways of knowing are possible. 
It's just there's that catch that sin has corrupted human logic. And so we can't use our reason independently of God, or as they like to say, autonomously. We can't we can't presume that our reason is autonomous. It should reason and religion conflict? Yeah, I don't you know. You go with it's revelation. It's terribly clear. Some seem to suggest that every belief, even the mundane beliefs of everyday life, you know, if, if such a thing is knowledge, that this is because God has injected you with this in some sense, he has revealed to you. Some will interpret this as saying that atheists can't know anything in the sense that, uh, you know, because we don't... Because we don't, we don't admit, accept... We don't admit yeah. to ourselves that God exists, right. right? Or some will suggest that, you know, atheists do know things, but only because God is an ontological reality mm-hmm. um, and he would insert us with the beliefs. You know, we just don't understand... We don't understand the grounding of this, right? right? Mm-hmm. So it's all depend. I mean, different presuppositionalists couch it in different terms... It's kind of hard to really give a, a kind of comprehensive mm-hmm. understanding because it might be different. The The problem for the unbeliever, as they see it, is that, you know, well, unbelievers have beliefs, but a worldview without a God will have beliefs that are kind of struggling to justify each other. Uh, these are going to be disjointed and confused and, and a very contrived ad hoc belief system. Mm. Um most of them are going to say that these beliefs won't qualify as knowledge because they don't have the kind of justification they would need. So the late Greg Bonson, an advocate of this approach, uh, he writes, quote, It is the Christian contention that all non-Christian worldviews are beset with internal contradictions as well as with beliefs which do not render logic, science, or ethics intelligible. On the other hand, the Christian worldview, taken from God's self-revelation of Scripture, demands our intellectual commitment Wait. Because it does provide the preconditions of intelligibility for man's reasoning, experience, and dignity. Pause for laughter. <laughs> okay. Now continue. And so they're saying that, like, they're the only ones that can really be consistent intellectually when it comes to intelligibility, when it comes to reason itself. This is remarkable to me because I was raised Christian Reformed. I was raised Calvinist. and But there was a lot of presuppositionalism, which I, I didn't have a word for until just recently. But this is absolutely, yeah, I mean, this area. I, I would say a lot of my family are presuppositionalists. They they certainly don't know the term either, and they wouldn't be able to describe it, but right. and we the talked, conclusions are, are the same. Right. We've talked about like, uh, like Planiga, for example. Yes. Um, and his kind of proper functionalism, this kind of the only way in which one can have real warrant is if our you know cognitive faculties are designed for a particular way and are functioning in a in a situation that would produce such things. Mm-hmm. This can be thought of as a kind of presuppositionalism, but it's it's not nearly as severe right. yeah. as as it's these a softer guys we're kind. talking about. Yeah. Right. Planning uses a lot of probability arguments. Mm-hmm. His claims are. Uh, are more modest, though. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's funny treating those claims as modest, but they're more modest compared to what we're seeing <laughs> right, with right, presuppositionalists. Right. And so, what is it specifically uh, about the non-theistic worldview that they find so incoherent? Uh, generally, there are going to be three areas that they want to insist only make sense within Christian presuppositions. Uh, these deal with what they call transcendentals. Morality, the justification of induction, and, and the justification of of logical reasoning principles. Um, 
so one, um, we seem to appeal to an objective moral standard in our lives, uh, but how do we justify such a thing in a naturalistic framework? You know, the only way we can really make sense of our of our moral discourse in reality, in in the of the moral discourse of of everybody, is that everyone's presupposing this divine law, but us atheists are are kind of rejecting this. We're not idea, acknowledging right? it, yeah. Uh, and we've covered this issue in, in past episodes. We've covered the moral argument from various different angles. And, and so maybe maybe in the next one we'll kind of do a, a quick rehash of, of the kind of reasons sure. why, we, why we find that to be a not very compelling argument. Secondly, uh, we make inductive inferences, uh, and we, we call this knowledge. In his debate with Eddie Tabash, Greg Bonson states the following, quote, for instance, Children don't merely conclude from their pain that a particular case of flame is burning them. They usually project that fire in general, or if you will, all fire, any fire, will burn them as well. From observed regularities or associations, we infer universal regularity even in the unobserved cases or yet future cases. In popular parlance, we say we, we assume the uniformity of nature. The method of generalizing from observed cases to all cases of the same kind is called induction. We all, we, we all do this, but are we perfectly rational to do this? They would say that the Christian is perfectly rational. They would say that uh, because um, God in his word has granted us that he is a um, – has – created the world in a particular regular manner that we, mm -hmm. we can feel safe in, in having and making probabilistic arguments about future cases. Only because of God. But only because of God, yeah. right. Okay. Um, because there's there's no guarantee. I mean... In, insert David Hume problem of induction. Exactly. Right. Which is recognized. Right. Yeah. Which is a, a legitimate philosophical concern. And then... Uh, the third point they'll make regarding the uh, transcendental argument for God is logic. In his debate with, with Edwin Kagan, Christian apologist and radio host Matt Slick used the logic version of the transcendental argument. Uh, quote, I propose that logical absolutes are conceptual realities that do not depend on human minds or the physical universe for their existence. Being that they are conceptual absolute and transcend space and time, there must be an absolute and transcendent mind from which these logical absolutes are derived. I conclude that the absolute and transcendent mind here is, is God. Um, and then, of course, you know, Matt demands that the atheists give an account for logic before even continuing the debate, because if they mm. can't continue the debate without justifying their use of logic, then, you know, they've already essentially won the debate, right. is essentially what he's saying. Because the atheist wants to stand there in a debate and borrow from the Christian worldview is how they see it. How do we give an account for logic? You know, um, we, we're sure using it, apparently, to, to argue against the Christian, mm -hmm. uh, but it seems what they're, what they're arguing is that to even do that, we're presupposing God. So we're using, so we're kind of... Um, Either that or our position just crumbles into abject skepticism. Uh, okay, right. And, and the, so they'll include a, a, sometimes in some of these presuppositional arguments like the intro page to presuppositionalism, you, you'll get these uh, quick Western philosophy in a nutshell lessons where we talk about, you know, the failure of the logical positivists. Right, right. Um, problems with uh, Platonism and, you know, just 
quick little sketches of how Western philosophy has had a hard time finding an absolutely certain ground for all of its knowledge claims, right? Because right. there are legitimate philosophical puzzles out there that, right. that still need to be solved. So the transcendental argument is, is kind of a, this collection of, of issues that they want to use against the non-believers. Hmm. So Cornelius Van Til, the father of presuppositionalism, uh, uses the following analogy. He says, quote, the non-Christian needs the truth of the Christian religion in order to attack it. As a child needs to sit on the top of his father's lap in order to slap his father's face. Uh, so the non-believer, as a creature, needs God as the creator and providential controller of the universe in order to oppose this God. Yeah, to be fair, my daughter will stand on the couch and slap me in the face, <laughs> so lap not needed. That's where the analogy breaks down. <laughs> you, you simply don't need a that's lap it. No. to smack a man in the face. It's... And that's that's the end of the segment. <laughs> you know what? I wrapped this up a lot quicker than we had expected. So... A lot of atheists either fail or give up when debating presuppositionalists. It's not that these guys are particularly difficult to argue with. I think there's a lack of familiarity. I think there's a failure to adapt our strategy to a new type of opponent. I think there's a very understandable and unavoidable commitment gap between both parties. Right. I mean, to these presuppositionalists, yeah. the most important thing in their life, right, is evangelism. And to us, you know, this is at best a necessary evil that we have to occasionally deal with these arguments right. to put them in their place. It's, mm -hmm. it's so, I mean, as I'm thinking about this, it's so stomach churning to think of even sitting down to the table with these people where there can be no neutral ground and go I, I, I'm not going to get anywhere with these guys yeah, but, yeah. Uh, I, there, there's people like John Loftus other apologists out there yeah. who uh, counter apologists that is yes who just say you know don't even waste your time debating these guys right. there's there's not we agree there's no common ground for us to talk so, <laughs> and so, those yeah. people are right so we're canceling the series <laughs> no. My objection to this is even if the other side doesn't see logic as a common ground, we do. Uh, and unless they have some sort of special Christian book on formal logic, I don't see how they can actually avoid any challenges to the validity of their own claims, right? They would have to back that up. I do think there is a bit of a common ground. And I think it's important that we actually use it to debate these guys because this apologetic method is gaining in popularity. Oh, yeah. And I believe that this is precisely because it's seldom ever countered. And the presuppositionalists are very much emboldened when atheists refuse to counter their claim. They take it as a sign of cowardice. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, I think just sometimes as atheists, we need to kind of stretch ourselves. We need to learn how to adapt our style of argumentation. Otherwise, you're just having the same argument. Right. Yeah. So this is – it's kind of fun to, to be able to take on a, and, a new approach. Yeah. And a lot of these presuppositionalists, they're constantly on the attack. They, mm. they a lot of times know better than a lot of atheists out there, to be honest, where the problematic areas in our own worldview are. Sometimes atheists do fail in debating these guys for genuine yeah. reasons. Dealing with presuppositionalists kind of force us to confront these these areas in our in our own thought and articulate a response to them. So I do think it's worthwhile to debate these presuppositionalists, but 
you may have picked up just from what we've talked about so far that there are certain strategies that are just not going to work. Right. First of all, assuming the burden of proof, not going to work with these guys, right? Mm-hmm. And because they have the transcendental argument for God, which purports to demonstrate that we don't have the burden of proof, it's begging the question if we insist that we still do until we've answered that argument. Mm-hmm. Debunking proofs of God, saying, okay, you you give me your arguments for God. I'll show why they're not valid. They don't prove God, and hmm. therefore I have a right. right not to believe. The presuppositionalists agree with us. Right. <laughs> they're starting from the premise that there's these There's our neutral proofs, territory. Yeah, these proofs fail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, if there's one, if there's common ground, we both agree that logic can't justify God. Yeah. Uh, and they, they fault other Christians for actually using these arguments to prove God. Um, so so obviously that's that's not going to work for us. Right. Any strategy that uh, that relies on abduction. Abduction? Yes. Yeah, inference of the best explanation. For example, whenever we have a clash of worldviews, typically the way I try to argue this a lot of times is to say, okay, given the set of available evidence that we we can agree right. upon, you know, which of our systems actually accounts for that evidence in the in the best way? Aliens. Right? Well, al- you can always say aliens. <laughs> aliens. <laughs> aliens. You know, for, we did this with the whole free will thing, right? We talked right. about, hey, look at all this evidence about how you can get a traumatic brain injury and lose parts of your personality and everything else. Doesn't wouldn't a materialist account of the mind fit this data better? than dualism or soul theory or anything like that. Right. That's not going to work with these guys, uh, again, because uh, abduction, to some degree, presuppose neutral ground. For reasons that we'll explain next week, I don't think uh, abductive appeals are off the table. But you do need to, again, you need to deal with that core transcendental argument for God first. You're, right. you're talking about kidnapping? <laughs> All options are on the table, Dave. I'm <laughs> this, not taking this any whole abduction thing <laughs> has has me a little bit uh, it's confused. Bit, it's my bag; it's not yours. So, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to have to make quite an effort to get within their mind and imagine what's going to be persuasive to them or hmm. not. So here's a here's a strategy though that I suggest one should take: keep them on the defense. Because if you don't, they're going to stay on the offense. Because they're not used to being on the defense. They've set up their argument to shield, really. Yeah, it's entirely an offensive strategy. Yeah. yeah. So it's absolutely crucial that you critique their arguments first. Unless you go on the offensive first, you're not going to get a second chance to do it later with these guys. <laughs> Saying God is the only foundation for human knowledge is a very problematic claim, as we're going to show next week. Uh, but it's a, a very simple one, right? It's pithy. You can say it in a sound bite. God mm-hmm. has perfect control. Uh, he makes sure that you know things. Our account for knowledge is very complex, and there's no single epistemology that all atheists are going to subscribe to. There's going to be all sorts of issues there. Sometimes atheists aren't even aware of this. What are our methods of induction? How are they justified? Uh, Does mathematics and logic depend on the existence of abstract entities, or do they reflect something fundamental about the natural world? Are they only conventions that we use that happen to be useful to us? Uh, Can you 
claim a sound demarcation criteria for deciding what's science and what's not. Uh, what do you take your scientific theories to be mean in the first place? Are they describing the world as it is? Or are they pragmatic ways of making sense of our observations? Okay, so there's a lot of issues right. that right. that any kind of epistemology, secular epistemology, is going to have to take up. Now, it doesn't matter how well you're arguing for your worldview at a general level. A well-read presuppositionalist can just push you further down the rabbit hole, and eventually you will have to admit your ignorance. It's mm -hmm. a given. Because philosophy and science don't have it all figured out. That's not the claim we're making. Right. That's the claim they're making. Any thinking person with a shred of integrity who's going to be aware of these debates is going to know there's persuasive arguments on all sides that need to be addressed. Now, in the meantime, we have to get on with our lives. We have vehicles to build. We have bodies to heal. We have politicians to vote for. Or not vote for. Or not vote for. <laughs> It's your choice. We, we <clears throat> are going to have to make do with a more general approach before all those nagging details have been satisfactorily worked out. Right. That's ordinarily not a problem for any of us in this room because we're all fallibilists. We, we all admit that we're not claiming absolute certainty for our beliefs. And you can say that because Luke isn't here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We can afford to tolerate a certain amount of ambiguity and tension in our beliefs because we think knowledge is refined over time. Mm -hmm. Really, it's that openness to changing your mind that's kind of our core intellectual virtue, I think. That's not how the presuppositionalist sees it. God's done all the hard work for them. They can believe with absolute certainty without cracking a book other than the Bible and some Protestant commentaries. Your indecision in philosophical debates is a sign of weakness. It shows that you're not capable of having the same confidence that they have, and they treat philosophy in the same way that these creationists treat biology. They transform unresolved issues into unresolvable issues, mm. and they see it as just all the more reason to quit and just put your trust in God. Now... What we do is we protest. We say, hey, look, we can have probable knowledge, even if it's not certain knowledge. And that's exactly what they're trying to disprove with TAG, with the transcendental argument for God. So returning to my point, you have to go on the offensive first. They'll try to say, change the subject. They'll try to accuse you of refusing to justify your worldview. And they'll say, oh, this is the cowardice of the, of the atheist. They always do it. You could read their blogs. You could read these debates. It's, it's a standard move. Mm -hmm. Just tell them, we'll get to that in a bit. Mm -hmm. Remind them that even if naturalism can't provide a firm foundation from knowledge, it doesn't follow that God can. Exactly. So it's just as a practical matter of debate, it would be silly to take on the entire body of secular philosophy before carving out a tiny bit of time to check if TAG is valid. If they don't see that as reasonable, then I say, yeah, you have total permission not to debate these guys. Uh, because I think that's that's very generous. Uh, right, right. Th that's that's a, just a natural concession they should make. I would also even throw in, I think it's fair game to use a certain amount of emotional appeal in your arguments with the presuppositionalists. 
in the same way they're kind of trying to shake you i mean not to try to prove your claims right that would be invalid that would be a fallacy I think if they are going to be constantly heaping on ad hominems and moral judgments, I think part of your show of confidence is is to throw that back at them. From our epistemology, we would arrive at the conclusion that they are dealing with information and reason immorally, too. And usually we kind of leave those those kind of comments off the table, I suppose, by we, I mean the atheists in this room. <laughs> not me, I guess, man. I guess not most me. don't. But, uh, you know, we, we want to have respect for the debate, right? right? Attack the ideas, not the people and that exactly. sort of thing. Right. Uh, I, I do think in this case, <laughs> I'll put it in a really cynical way, the holier-than-thou attitudes turn us off. But these guys are Calvinists, most of them. They're used to being motivated through humiliation, guilt, and (laughs) (laughs) self-effacement. They they do it every Sunday. My God, it's like you're you're summarizing my childhood right there. (laughs) I I don't think it's out of the question if you see them, see your opponent flustered to guilt trip them about the arrogance of their position. You could even use religiously loaded terms to do it. Say, you know, something to the effect of, you know, I don't exactly see where modal logic is described in the Bible, (laughs) but apparently you think this represents the mind of God, right? Right. Uh, So you're sneaking in a lot of non-Christian reasoning. You're conflating your own understanding with the mind of God. And that's not only arrogant. If, If God is real, that's blasphemous. Yeah, And seriously, they need to hear these kind of condemnations. They don't consider you to be an honest proponent of an alternative position, right? They view you as a self-deceived enemy Mm -hmm. waiting to snare them in a bunch of word games with reasons they don't even accept. And that's why I say, you know, you need to view this like a poker game, really. You are as much playing against your opponent's psychology here as you are their actual arguments. Mm. So... Stay calm. Don't get distracted. Yeah, basically, repeat after me. I don't grant that premise. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have to say that over and over and over again. Uh, Next week on the show, we are going to um, we're going to try to employ some of these strategies that we're talking about in directly confronting the transcendental argument for God. Uh, then on top of that, using a number of indirect challenges to presuppositionalism to try to show that their claims aren't valid. Look for that next time on Reasonable Doubts. Time now for some polyatheism. Well, since Punxsutawney Phil up there on Gobbler's Knob, which is the dirtiest and funniest sounding name of a place anywhere. To a perversion literate generation. That's right. Gobbler's Knob needs to change. (laughs) Well, since he saw his shadow, uh, apparently we're in for six more weeks of winter. Not that you'd know it here in West Michigan. But I thought I'd offer up something light and sunny. Um, I speak, of course, of the Celtic's own shining one, Luff, or Lug, or Lou, also known as the Long-Armed, Fierce Striker, Sword Shouter, and more. Luff's origin story has several variations, but the one with the most memorable mythic tropes goes a little something like this. 
his father and mother belonged to two warring tribes, the Tondadanan and the Fomor, respectively. The Ton are generally depicted as tall, ginger-haired beings of staggering beauty, like Amy Pond or Conan O'Brien. <laughs> Okay, so I don't. Well, I'm not really an expert on attractive guys. Ladies think Conan O'Brien's hot, right? I'm uh, sure they do. Uh, right. I mean, he's on TV. Uh, the Fomorians, on the other hand, are frightening fish-human hybrids like Ann Coulter or Steve Buscemi. Baylor, the king of the Fomorians <laughs> and eventual grandfather of Luff, spoiler alert, was told by a druid soothsayer that one day he would be killed by his grandson. So Baylor did everything he could to prevent his daughter from ever getting pregnant or, in fact, even knowing that men existed. She was raised by 12 women at the top of the highest tower in all the land. Luff's father is tricked out of ownership of a cow um, who produces abundant milk by Baylor, a little Jack of the Beanstalk to throw in there, mm. who happens to be disguised as a small ginger. Soulless monsters, those gingers. Hey, only a ginger can call another ginger ginger. That's not true. Uh, to get revenge, Luff's father gets help from a fairy woman who transports him to the top of the highest tower in all the land where he f- can find and seduce Baylor's daughter. And once again, since it's mythology, anytime there's sex, there will be at least one baby. This time around, there are three Baylor finds out, freaks out, and sends a messenger to drown the poor babies in a sack. To drown, or maybe not. That's harsh. I know, right? (laughs) But a third, Luff, of course, tumbles out of the sack and is rescued by the sea god Mananan McClare, who raises him for a time and then turns him over to the smithy god to raise him. Luff learns many skills and grows strong and long-armed. As a young man, he strikes out on his own and applies for an internship with Nwada, the king of the Tondadanan. First, is it he, a paid internship? Yes, well, so paid, <laughs> paid or unpaid? I believe it's unpaid because uh, where are you going to get a paid internship these days? Poor bluff. Yeah. Uh, first, he applies as a smith, but is rejected because they've already got a smith. So he applies as, again as a warrior, and again he's rejected because they've already reached their quota of warriors. Then he applies as a poet, a harpist, a historian, a craftsman, a a haberdasher, a fletcher, an (laughs) obstetrician, a CPA, a sanitation engineer, and a puppet wrangler. But each time he's denied because the Tawn already have someone for each of those jobs. But, you know, the problem is these these gods get out of God college and they think they're going to get a God job (laughs) right out of God college. Occupy Olympus. Um... (laughs) It's not practical, people. There's a bubble. (laughs) Ah, Luff says, but do you have someone who can do all those things? No, sir, they do not. So Luff is brought in as the guy who can do just about everything. So if any of the other guys need to go on vacation. Exactly. They have someone who can step in. Um, it probably didn't hurt that his spear, and yes, this time we're talking about an actual spear, not a phallus. Sometimes a spear is just a spear. That's right. Um, <laughs> is happens to be an unbeatable weapon. So King Wada 
takes a shine to this bright young go-getter, and Luff quickly shoots up the ranks to become field commander of the Tawn in their battle against the Fomor. Sadly, in the great battle, Nwana loses his life to Baylor. Baylor then turns his evil eye on Luff, but the quick-thinking Luff uses his slingshot to knock Baylor's eye clean through to the back of his head, thus unleashing its awesome evil power upon the ranks of his own army. Good trick, like shooting the air tank at Jaws at the end. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Luff becomes the new king and reigns wisely and well for 40 years until one of two unfortunate things happens to him. Either A, he's killed, or two, the Tawn lose control of their territory. The first story involves one of Luff's wives cheating on him. Luff kills the man she's cheating on him with, and then the dead man's sons kill Luff. All very tabloid stuff. Hmm. The second story appears in the Book of Invasions and involves the Tondadanan making a poorly thought-out treaty with a group of Milesians. The two sides <laughs> agree. Beware, my legions, bearing treaties. <laughs> exactly. Um, the two sides agree to share the lands, but the Milesians are given the power to choose who gets what. A very clever poet on their side decides that they should get everything above ground, and the Tawn get everything below ground. Mm. Thus, Luff and his brood end up hanging out down in Fraggle Rock. And while it may be a bit embarrassing for Luff, this is actually where he makes his greatest impact on modern culture. See, underground, the great Luff must stoop in order to do all of the craft work he's so good at. The once imposing warrior now becomes known as Low Stooping Luff, or Luff Cromaine, which is where we get the word... Leprechaun. That's the origin of the leprechaun. So really, yep, absolutely. The the um. So eventually, they made him short instead of stoop. Well, exactly, and you know, like Santa Claus, the more uh, popular imagery changes over time. Originally, Santa Claus was an elf, and now he's a big guy in a red suit because of Coca Cola. So the leprechaun goes from being a stooping worker to just being a short person. Yeah, over time. Much easier to impersonate. That's right. If you're a midget. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there you have it. God of arts and crafts, light, war, poetry, about a dozen other things, and magically delicious pitchmen for Lucky Charm cereal. Just one more god worth not believing in. That's all for us for now. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, you can email us with your questions, comments, and so forth, especially you presuppositionalists out there, at doubtcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on twitter.com slash doubtcast, like us or friend us on Facebook, shop in our store at zazzle.com slash doubtcast, and check out our blog as well as many other truly awesome blogs at freethoughtblogs.com. Dot com. We have an exciting announcement, which we've saved to the very end here. This is episode 97 of the official count. Now, we've actually done, what, a good 20 yeah, or more yeah, above that, but whatever. So for our official 100th episode, 
we will be doing our first and probably last <laughs> live episode of Reasonable Doubts. Reasonable Doubts without a net. That's right. So this means you can interact with us live on the air. Um, and yes, it means I will be anxiously hovering over the dump button for the entire show. No profanity. One cuss word could take us down as a That's station. Right. Mm. Um, more details on that coming soon when we have the exact date, set, and time. We'll be uh, promoting the hell out of this thing. Yeah. I'm sure. Well, and, and we're working on, though we haven't completely confirmed it yet. We're working on having some sort of open house here at the station where yes. where fans can actually visit uh, and watch the recording live. Maybe get some um, cake. Yeah. Yeah. So those of you who are local, you can do that. And those of you who are listening anywhere in the world will be able to call in live to the show and talk to us or tweet at us or Facebook and have your comments um, read on the air. So more details coming soon. I, for one, can't wait for it. I don't know if the rest of you are quite as excited as I am, but it sounds <laughs> like fun to me. Yeah, yeah. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>